Hi, everybody. Welcome to the last panel in the Film Music Media 2023 Symposium Series. My name is Kai Savas, and I'm here with another amazing panel of guests. This time we are focusing a lot on post-production and getting uh, people from different fields of expertise to talk about the collaborative process, working with composers, working with music, working with the edit, all in post-production. So please uh, join me in welcoming our guests. Uh, first up, he is an additional music composer and score mixer known for his work on Hunters. Please welcome Forrest Christensen. Hey, Forrest. Thanks so much Hello. for joining. Thanks. <laughs> uh, next up, she is the music supervisor for Heartbreak High and Okja. Please welcome Gemma Burns. Hey, Gemma. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, Next, he is the uh, he is a sound designer, supervising sound editor, re-recording mixer, and founder of This Is Sound Designer Studios, known for his work on Joyland and The Voyeurs. Please welcome Nathan Royal. Hey, everybody. And uh, last but not least, uh, she is the editor behind the integrity of Joseph Chambers. Please welcome Yvette Amerian. Hey, Yvette. And uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, uh, everybody. Uh, um, I want to um, jump in and talk to uh, Forrest. Let's uh, jump in and talk to you first. In the in the thriller crime series Hunters, uh, you worked al alongside composer Rupert Gregson Williams to provide additional music cues and mixing. And I'm curious, what does that collaborative process look like, and how does it help bring the world of Hunters to light? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been, you know, working with Rupert for for several years. So I first worked with him back in 2017 when I co-mixed Wonder Woman. Um, but like uh, after that, I took a job with him as his technical assistant. And uh, I worked for him for five years. And that brought me to the point where we could work together on, I could do additional cues. and actually ended up co-scoring something. Um, but Hunters was like one of, the, one of these shows where I was able to get involved on the music composing side, but also at the end sort of uh, shaping the sonic the sonics of it during the score mix. Yeah. So uh yeah it's it was it was a cool I mean I, I've done that with him on several projects. So we have a shorthand um which has been really really exciting and I've been able to bring that to my work with other composers now. Um uh Hunters was special because it has these like well this sort of uniquely a uh, quintessential villain uh, mm. who is Hitler. Uh, you know, you can just be as e villainous and evil with the music as you want to be, and right. you can't go too far with it. Um, so that was just so fun to do that, uh, like motif, um, and and try to find a way to just get it as gritty and dark as possible uh, for that character. Um, we scored in Vienna, uh, did the, the orchestra and the choir. Was, they did a beautiful job. They make my oh, yeah. life a lot easier. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just just getting the recordings from there. Um, and there was some like uh, sort of adventure, almost James Bond-like adventure themes. Um, for the hunters as they're like traveling the globe on this quest to like locate Hitler. Um, they, you know, so it's almost like surprising to me at first, this like suddenly this orchestra coming out of this, uh, out of the TV show where there's a lot of synth 
but then it becomes this like adventurous uh, mode almost um, for the show, which is a really fun touch. Um, and then there was the choir, which, you know, Rupert is amazing with choral composing. That's oh, yeah, like, he's he fantastic. Had, yeah, it's his background in choral music choir he was uh, a choir boy i believe when he was growing up right <laughs> along with right. Harry and <laughs> yeah yeah they, 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 they have that background and um so like you can tell when, you, when you're listening to this choral orchestration and it's really featured and uh that was like and also a little bit like aleatoric experimental choir stuff as well uh yeah which you know like in terms of the orchestration and writing became very interesting to explore so yeah yeah just there's I mean, Rupert, yeah i love rupert's music he's i mean fantastic and uh yeah. i've got to i know his brother and i know him and and he's all, all the way on the in like the english countryside though right in london like he he, he likes his uh solitude over there <laughs> yeah yeah I've been, I've, yeah he's got a beautiful place yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely oh, yeah. um Oh, sorry. Go ahead. If you had any, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I envy how his uh, his cottage life. Yes, his cottage life. <laughs> very, very peaceful. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, uh, Gemma, I want to jump over to you. You know, uh, as a music supervisor, how would you describe the difference between working with composers on orchestral works versus on soundtracks that have a cohesive sound uh, between the score and songs in the project? Um, well, I thought I might just take a step back and just maybe start by uh, describing how many different roles a music supervisor can actually inhabit. Um, yeah, because I think like, it's a, you know, yeah, people yeah. don't really know exactly the, the yeah, depth I mean, of what, how you, what you work with. Yeah. So, I mean, different projects have vastly different needs. It depends on um, how the director likes to work. Um, you know, some directors... You know, it's a sh they just give me a shopping list of songs that they want me to clear. Um, some directors <laughs> um, get me involved from like years before the project's even up. Um, we're discussing the tone of the music and whatnot. Um, and also some music supervisors really specialise in working with um, the, the score composer and being involved in all the orchestration and the recording and all that sort of side of things. Um, I, I, I sort of fall in the middle. Um, I, I tend to... Um, predominantly sort of set the tone with the director, you know, maybe suggest what composer might be right for the project. Mm -hmm. And then of course, during the process, we're all giving feedback on the cues and whatnot, but I'm not super involved in the um, actual recording side of things necessarily. Um, occasionally I am on certain, with certain composers, but not so much with orchestral work, but, um, but yeah, of course it's, it's wonderful when you can have a cohesive um, sound that's created by, you know, very collaborative um, relationship between the, the composer and the music supervisor. Um, I've, I've sort of formed a few unofficial little teams that I like to work with on different projects, depending on what, what their needs are. And, um, um, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's wonderful when there is that cohesion because quite often on films, I actually have very little to do with the composer as well. And um, right. I mean, once again, it really depends on the needs of the film. But um, I tend to work most closely with um, composers personally when um, either the composer and or the director aren't super experienced. Because, um, mm -hmm. you know, being a music supervisor, I've done, you know, over 100 projects, whereas, you know, obviously a director may, may be their first project, their first feature or whatnot. So they're really looking for guidance. And I find my role is frequently to sort of interpret 
um, what the director needs, what the director's trying to say and what the film needs and somehow filter that through to the composers in a, in a way that they understand, um, as well as sort of nutting out specific cues in more detail. But, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of, does that sort of answer your question? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, I I always find it fascinating how music supervisors like. I think some people might have this like closed-minded view that they just like pulling up their iTunes playlist and just handing it over, but it's such yeah. an it's no, no, such no. an in-depth like uh, process that that you have to go through and and how you can yeah in the role just varies different so differently. I've heard Wildly, music yeah. supervisors, yeah, it's just so different vastly on the composer, yeah. the director, yeah, yeah. and. Some so music supervisors you... don't have a creative bone in their body. And I'm sorry, I'm not saying that as a diss, but they're no, that's yeah, no, no, absolutely. Do, you know? yeah. <laughs> um, Some people maybe, whereas... yeah, are just the iTunes list, you know, maybe that is. Yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah. Whereas I, like I studied film and, you know, you know, that's what I'm in it for, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, collaborating yeah. with the team and trying to nut out um, the most evocative way to, to tell the story is um, a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, Nathan, I want to jump over uh, over to you. You're currently working uh, with composers Catherine and Kim Kluge. Uh, what is their creative process like and how do you incorporate sound design in both conceptual and practical ways throughout the project? Yeah. Um, well, so first of all, I, you know, I'm in a unique position because most of the projects that I work on, I'm both a supervising sound editor, designer, and a mixer. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually sitting here in my own mix stage here in Burbank. Um, and so, you know, the process that I and my team work on is pretty integrated. And so, um, you know, we're usually starting pretty early and more and more and even in pre-production because we're working with uh, directors over and over again. Uh, Catherine and Kim are sort of famous. Uh, they worked on Martin Scorsese's film Silence, and they actually were denied the opportunity to be nominated for an Academy Award because their their musical compositions were deemed uh too in, in included too much sound design and so therefore they the music was considered not uh it wasn't score enough to be uh, a score yeah. um which to me is a really exciting because you know the way that i approach sound as a sound designer and a mixer is you know it's not this kind of walled off fenced off way of thinking about it we're what we're dealing with with sound in in both music you know music as this kind of organized sound and also sound design which you know we're also often thinking about musically and you know the i think the best sound for movies is when these things are are you know hybridizing and talking to each other and informing each other and so, you know, this project I'm working on with Catherine and Kim, we're sort of hitting the ground from day one thinking about that. And so, for instance, you know, once we had spotted the movie all together and kind of recognized some of the themes for the music and the motifs and the emotional arcs and different reoccurring, this particular movie has a lot of reoccurring um, kind of motifs and moments. You know, then we started to talk about sounds that relate to objects, sounds that relate to characters, Things like a character's high heels or uh, um, a, you know, that that's a one instance or another character who has a specific object that they uh, that that has a sonic aspect to it through the movie. And so then what I did is I went in and created some design for those specific sounds. And then they took those sounds and they're actually going to be working with those to incorporate them into the score so they're thinking about how can these sonic elements become like samples in their palette of sounds uh, some of the sounds were environmental sounds for instance so 
the 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 you know they're thinking from day one about how they can start to incorporate the sound design palette into their work and then vice versa once they're started to create these compositions that are conscious and sometimes directly kind of interfacing with the sound design then we're also going to let that kind of reinform us about well how does the sound design uh become you know in moments where maybe in this particular movie there's memory and flashbacks how then that can inform the way the sound design is going to kind of operate within the movie. So it's a, it's a, yeah. it's in one way, it's a kind of obvious uh, approach, but, I, but it's also one that's, you know, very innovative and new because oftentimes we're so separated in how we work. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah. I know. I love, yeah, I love, I mean, that's the whole, the, the beauty of it is com- like find those paths, crossing those paths. And, and yeah, I, sometimes the Oscars with their strict rules, I always like, how do you put like there's no rule to how to make something creative you know it's just like if you want to do something and do it like I, I don't like sometimes when they put the things in these boxes i remember one time i remember back a few years ago and it wouldn't nominate anybody more than two composers on a cue sheet now thankfully we have you know multiple right. composers you know getting you know nominated for score and, and stuff like that and there's still no music supervision category the guild i'm, I'm glad that the music supervisors guild uh. does what they're doing and trying to bring some you know, light, shining light to your work, you know, you know, Gemma. So it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's quite frustrating of... every year to see all my colleagues getting nominated because I tend to work on projects where everyone gets yeah. nominated and I'm right. like, oh, well. And everyone asks me if I'm going to various award ceremonies. I'm like, I'll be cheering from my living room. <laughs> right. I know. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's such a political thing with the, you know, with, the, with awards. Well, it's, it's about always... whether or not you've created original content. And I right. do often commission songs, but anyway, yeah. that's a, yeah, <laughs> that's a, <laughs> I don't want to moan. It's just yeah. Yeah, it's a little frustrating. Uh, but Nathan, I'm curious, where in Burbank are you? Because I work at Cartoon Network Studios and I'm right there. In the... Oh yeah, we're, we're just down the street. We're we're right at, right where Victory curves from going north, south, oh. east, west. Here. Oh, nice. Perfect. Yeah. I, I know, I think La Land Records is somewhere around that corner bend. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, my, uh, my company's called This Is Sound Design. And yeah, nice. we have a facility here with several stages. Everything's in house, so we work all in house, in house Foley, ADR, mixing, etc. Awesome. Yeah, I'm. I used. To, I'm, I'm on the East Coast right now, but I, me and my wife used to live right in the foothills, right above Glen Oak. So, but we're oh, coming yeah. back in July. We'll be back in town in July. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Yvette, I want to uh, jump over to you now. I mean, I want to take to take it over to you because as an editor, your role working alongside composers looks different than that of someone in the music department. So what does that collaboration process typically look like and how critical is it to the overall tone of the project? Yeah. So I'll say that it depends on the project that I'm working on. It depends a lot on how the director likes to work. Um, I come from a background where at one point I was doing a lot of documentary features and especially very music driven documentaries. Like I did one for Amazon about Mary J. Blige. So that obviously involved a different set of, you know, specific music supervision because we were utilizing so many of her songs in, com- in right. conjunction with uh, a composer. One of the things that tends to happen a lot in documentaries and unscripted content is you as the picture editor are also, if not the music editor and sound editor, <laughs> at least you're laying the groundwork for what the pace and tone of that project is going to sound like. So I have a significant amount of that experience and I've often received the comment from my 
mixers and you know sound designers who take over the project that I've done so so much of that so for me making that transition into narrative projects and narrative features was different in that I had to let go of a lot of that mm. um and so that process and that those projects specifically uh my role is usually what I'll do is I will be acquainted with the sound designers and uh, composer early on if they're already on board. Sometimes they aren't. They come in a little bit later into the picture. Getting from them uh, a temp library of things that they've either already been working on specifically for the project or um, a library of songs that they may have had from previous projects that I could use to then sort of try to build the pace and the tone of what the movie will eventually um, sound like. Um, and then as those cues start to filter in, being able to replace those uh, and sound, sound design elements as well, especially if it's a sound design heavy project that requires specific types of sonic elements. Um, and then, of course, at the tail end of the project, you know, once we're once we're locked or maybe in some cases, even when when we're soft locked, trying to you know start that process of spotting, seeing yeah. where those cues are going to come in and out. Um, and then obviously being able to be a part of the final the final mix. So I'm not involved as a picture editor. I'm not involved in, in the creation of that sound design uh, or the actual creation of the music. But I do have a lot of communication that occurs with the sound designer and and and, and the composer, and then ultimately being present in the mix for for what that final sound is going to be like. Wow, that's I mean, yeah, that's so much. But I mean, you're I mean, there's so many people involved in your process as well. But that anchoring around you, that's 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 yeah, that's that's incredible. I find um, music. Uh, sorry, editors are often sort of music supervising as well. In a sense, like I, I often have very close relationships yeah. with editors. Sometimes I feel like editors. There's a bit like stepping on each other's toes because the editors have been yeah. working with the pictures so closely and trying out different music. And then when someone else comes along and goes, well, I think we should try, try right. this. It can be, you know, right. I have had some fraught moments to be honest. But um, but generally, if it's a a good yeah. a collaborative team and there's a also a music editor who's in like a project I've just Involved. been working on yeah. for a long time that's in yeah. in New York. Um, yeah. The picture editor and the director are working away. Me and the music editor are working away at looking at cues, and and then she's in the room with them and trans. You know, we're sort of filtering through, but we're but it's very very collaborative, isn't it? Um, oftentimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have I have many editors I've worked with now on a dozen projects. In fact, like in you know, directors often mm, make a, maybe a feature every three or four years, and. Um, but you know, I have a couple editing collaborators. I have editor collaborators who I've done you know a dozen movies with over the last five years, yeah. and uh, and and the same with um, with music editors, and in some cases music supervisors in a few groups that I work with. So you know, yeah. oftentimes we end up being all you know the composers are kind of coming and going because again they're they're working less frequency frequently, but yeah. the kind of everyone who's here in this group, I have many collaborators I work with three four times a year now which is really really cool so, but when we start to develop a shorthand and a way of working and um it's uh you know i think it, it's not only is it great because it, it develops our creative uh process because we get to like try things out and we try to learn how you know the, the editor knows how i like to have things tempt and also brings new ideas that maybe we're iterating from one project to the next to the next uh, especially with when we work with the same director over a few mm. projects. So we're all developing a shorthand together and there's so much going on between the picture edit and the sound edit and the music. And so it's, uh, you know, I think it's one of the things that I'm really thrilled as to, to be able to open my own facility because I'm, 
you know, that facilitates this kind of like ongoing collaboration. Uh, and it's, Absolutely. It's one of the reasons I did this is so that I could could build up these relationships over a career. How long? And also, you- sorry. <laughs> oh, I was wondering how long you've had your business open. Well, I've been, I've had, this is the third facility that I've had. So it's been about 10 years, but this is the, this is the first that's only my company. I shared it with another company previously. So yeah. And we've been here about three years. That's awesome. Wow. Congrats. That's awesome. I was just going to add to what you were saying before um, about, you know, having a shared, you know, shorthand and whatnot. It's also the, you know, I find often working with a new team, you're kind of trying to figure out what their sensibility is as well, their aesthetic Mm -hmm. sensibility and um, how far you can push things, how weird you can go, how mainstream it's going to be. And once you've worked with someone a bunch of times, I think that's obviously why they return to, especially the creatives and the team, because, you know, you just know that you get each other on a sensibility, you know, something it's quite intangible but you you know that you're on the same page and that's so important because you know especially as a creative it's quite frustrating to 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 work with someone who just sees the world so differently you know um yeah 100 well i want to um jump to a question that uh, will go around the room and get everyone's perspective i know we all thank you for sharing kind of a bit of your world and some of the projects you worked on so you might have touched on this a little bit but um in your experiences I mean, and this may be a little, a, a nice platform to toot your own horn a bit, but what is the most crucial skill that you bring to the table in your own field that other people, yeah, you know, that people have to rely on you for that, that you, what you're bringing to the collaborative process and the, you know, as you, as part of the team, post-production team that you're bringing to, and uh, how do you integrate that skill into your collaboration with composers? So something that a composer would definitely rely on you for. Um, uh, Forrest, for, why don't you kick us off? Sure thing. Um well, I would just say that I, I sort of have a split personality in my career, which is that, you know, I, I do composing, but also mixing. Right. Um, and sometimes I do these for the same, with the same collaborators, uh, and sometimes, sometimes not. But I think that um, on either side, being able to do the other thing is nice, is what makes me desirable yeah. to do the other one. So like if I'm, say I'm mixing a score, uh, my background as a composer and my understanding of like the perspective of my client um, as a composer and like the musical, uh, their, their musical speak and like just understanding their music and their, their whole process up to this point um, helps me to create a good mix for that. And then likewise, when I'm composing, um the having those mixing skills and like feeding those into that product uh you know just hopefully makes things sound better so yeah um you know that just having that like uh that multi thing happening means that i have my focus is like always like what what am i doing but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at the same time they're very helpful to each other so right. I, you know, oh, yeah they're very compliment yeah definitely compliment yeah. each other for sure um uh, Gemma, how about yourself i know i mean you also talked about how it depends on the director and the composer so i'm curious yeah what what, do you, what are you they what are they relying on you for and what are you bringing to the table when you're working especially with a composer um well for the composer it's kind of what i mentioned earlier about um having worked with so many directors and on so many projects. um, And as I said, you know, having a film background and having studied film, um, 
it's really about interpreting what the film needs um, and, you know, having, you know, sourced so many songs and worked with so many cues over the years, like, of course, it really varies from director to director, but I feel like I have a sort of, I've sort of developed an inherent sensibility around, you know, the most effective way to tell the story. And so yeah. um, I'm sort of, off, yeah, I'm off, oftentimes um, interpreting what the director's trying to get through to the composer, but also the directors lean, you know, a lot of incredible directors have terrible taste in music. <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and sometimes their ideas are a bit really on the nose or whatever. Yeah. It really, look, it really varies, but um, but they sort of rely on me to also to have my finger on the pulse in terms of, you know, say, say something like Heartbreak High, which I'll probably speak about later, but, you know, the directors aren't necessarily that in touch with what the Zuma mm-hmm. high school kids are listening to or whatever it is, you know, I right. have to sort of um I have to sort of act as an expert in whatever genre we're dealing with. And so the composer the director really leans on me um to be able to um come up with the best possible um examples of that world of music. Um yeah, well, how do you I mean, keep up, how do you stay in touch with that? Like you mentioned how directors would know, like mm. so are you constantly I mean, immersed in this world where you are looking at what's the new trends, what are the big artists, yeah, what are the smaller indie artists like? Yeah, no, definitely. And look, it's more and more these days. I find it it's it is actually it's not that hard if you put if you put your mind to it to find out what's going on in different worlds. But I right. but I'm sort of a young forty um, something. <laughs> I um I'm very um I'm just in touch with all the young kids music anyway I I just love it myself so but obviously there'll be certain projects where they're you know like for example when I worked online you know we needed a lot of Bollywood music and sure I knew a bit about it but on each that's one of the fun parts of the job is you know each each project um I kind of have to do a deep dive into that world of music and find out what are the most incredible artists that we could use and um and you know so that the director feels safe to lean on me for that information you know but for those for that um resource yeah yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, Nathan, how about yourself? Well, um, you know, I I feel as a sound designer, um, which is less related to music in some ways, but also, but I think in some way, other ways, more important is that, you know, I I was very lucky to, to get to do my MFA at Cal Arts and really came at this from a design perspective, which is a little bit mm-hmm. unusual in the industry. Mm-hmm. I studied design and I and I learned to have a discourse around design with collaborators and that really informs everything I do. And so, you know, I think on that side, my, the greatest asset that I have is that, you know, I think about, I, or I, I come at it as, as a, you know, what does the movie sound like and as a, in a larger kind of way. So it's not really about solving technical problems or an engineering mm. issue, or right. it, it's really about kind of the larger idea of what does the movie sound like? And then everything that happens with Foley and design and dialogue editing, everything else is coming from that conversation. And I think that's my strongest essence. I can sit down in the stage, the spotting session with the composer, with the director, with the editor, and we can have a real conversation about creatively what we're going to do with the movie. And I think that's a little bit unique, actually, in the industry. Um, and, uh, you know, but then, you know, as a person who mixes, you know, mixing is kind of, it in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the pinnacle of the technical part of the exercise. But actually, for me, it's as much about that design idea and bringing those ideas through to the end of the process 
And, you know, that really is a huge part of it. That is with, is with the music. And, yeah, you know, yeah. if we've done it all right and we've, and we've had the kind of collaboration that I try to have on every project, you know, that last few weeks in the stage, we're realizing all these ideas in a tangible way that we're actually experiencing them in the stage. And, you know, I feel like I'm at the point in my career, I'm sure the other folks here too, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm now in like in 15 years in and, you know, I, I'm the most thrilling thing is when I know that idea that we had that was a purely conceptual that day when we spotted the movie to be experiencing it together in the stage in that last week is just a, a really powerful thing. And that's, mm. you know, that's what I feel like I can bring that. And I, and I love experiencing that to be like, it wasn't just an idea. We can actually realize it here. And my, my role as a mixer is a big part of that because you yeah. have to be able to, create that final experience with the the material that it works and it clicks in and it feels right and it sounds right so i think yeah. that's a good articulation of it for me oh yeah absolutely yeah absolutely uh Yvette, how about yourself what do you bring to the table that uh the music and the composer that they do not have from, from an editing standpoint that they really need sure um well i mean from a from an editing standpoint one of the things i think that makes me unique as far as because we have to deal both with picture and sound that's something I'm constantly thinking about and as I'm yeah. crafting it pacing it um be because of my background I often have to deal with material that like the story literally does not exist I have to produce it I have to create it I have to craft it and so much of that comes from what I do with with the sound how I pace it what kind of music I'm using um what kind of sound design I'm using so because I have to do so much of that myself uh in 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 the documentary world I think that gives me or or so I've been told I guess but a lot of people will sort of look at the way that I craft my sequences I remember I was sitting with a director recently and she was like why are you checkerboarding and I was like why not <laughs> like that's the way that I cut I I like uh, yeah. to smooth things out I don't like black holes in my audio I like everything to be full I like there to be backgrounds I mean there are directors who can watch things very rough and I always kind of go into my assemblies with that understanding are you okay with watching things rough are you okay with watching things unfinished but there are people who just can't do it their their brains can't process it they have to be able to see it all kind of smoothed out so that's just the way that I work I smooth from the very beginning I think a lot about my sound design I think a lot about the elements that I'm missing that are going to help bring it to life um and I, what's what's hard for us is I know eventually you're going to strip it out and start from scratch, right? Or, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you're going to keep pieces of it. Or like I said, sometimes you use it as a little bit of a roadmap in terms of how we've pasted or where something is spe specifically supposed to hit or, you know, um, drop down or whatever. And I've been fortunate in the relationships that I've had with those composers and sound designers that they, they take my ideas into account and we talk about it during spotting sessions and things like that. But um, but yeah, it's, that's one of the hard things for me is because I, I like, I like having my hands in that and sort of relinquishing control and, and knowing that there are people that I trust who are going to take over and, and make it just incredible is, uh, it's really fun. And, and like, like, uh, Nathan was saying that collaborative part of it, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the best part of what we do, isn't it? So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, I want to, um, I do want to uh, jump back into some of everyone's individual projects. Uh, you know, we have to mention, of course, the biggest series streaming right now, The Last of Us, uh, Forest, you provide additional score arrangements and programming for composer uh, Dave Fleming in the show, which Dave is a, a friend of mine. He co-composes uh, with Gustavo Santolaja. Um, so what differences are taken from the video game itself and how do you bring fresh sounds uh, to the material? 
uh yeah that was like that was such a fun project and i'm so glad that dave asked me to be a part of it um yeah i mean obviously we're very inspired by the video game score yeah um and uh you know i had some very deep listening sessions to it uh to get into the, the vibe um for this and then you know but you know there's just we really wanted to put a fresh spin on it of course um and what it really came down to was just tons of experiment experimentation and sound um like finding new ways to process my violin for instance this was a big part of what i was doing wow. um you know dave, dave would write a string line they, oh, what, can we, what can we do with this i would sort of try to play it in uh multi multi-layer it add all kinds of weird effects and just figure out what sounded the creepiest or what sounded what that the boldest or the most interesting and we just had tons of experimentation like this through, through the whole process and Dave's just a joy to work with oh yeah Dave's one of the most <laughs> easiest laid back guys I know but <laughs> was it was it interesting to work because I know you know it's, it's it's a unique situation where Gustavo and him didn't work directly collaborative you know Gustavo has material from the game that was rearranged for the show and new material done with by him and Dave kind of filled in as an additional composer slash co-composer in certain episodes was it hard to find that I guess that to make it cohesive and blend because you said you did a lot of listening and deep diving on the score so what were you pulling from Gustavo's music to make sure that you know it did feel like a cohesive world sonically and musically it's a very similar situation to the way the second game was composed. Matt Quayle, who I know did the in-game music and Gustavo did the cutscenes, and his in-game score completely different than what Gustavo's kind of you know yeah. work was. No, yeah. and that's part that's part of what you know, that's part of what was we were inspired by as well, is Matt Quayle's work. Yeah. Is, Connected. Is amazing. And 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 uh, you know, synth more synth focused. Absolutely. And yeah. you know, we we took we took that into consideration as well. No, it's it's the the show is fantastic, and I can can't wait to see how they continue yeah. the last few episodes uh, and they adapt yeah. from the game. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very happy with that. Everyone seems to be enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Yvette, uh, you recently edited uh the film The Integrity of Joseph Chambers. How did you work uh with both the composer and sound designer to inf influence the sound mixing process? So the sound design of the of the movie is a really significant part of it for anybody who's seen it or even just read reviews about it. Our sound designer is Peter Albrechtson, who is um, really well known in the sound community and um, was really received a lot of accolades for his last collaboration with Robert Machoyan, our director, uh, on a film for mm -hmm. Neon called The Killing of Two Lovers. And so their you know their process is that they think about sound really, really early on, uh, you know, as, as early as, you know, Robert working on the script. So there were certain elements that we had talked about, you know, for example, it, it, the, the story is mostly about a man who goes on a hunting adventure, gone awry, and so he's alone in the woods for a significant period of time. And it's a very quiet film. Um, there's not a lot going on. So, you know, we talked a lot about the editorial process of filling that space with just having it be overwhelmed by the sounds of the forest sort of eating him alive because he's this, you know, uh, he's this, you know, little person in this, you know, big landscape. So that was something that we talked about a lot. And there were moments where he's supposed to sort of be imagining a baseball game or imagining laughter or applause. And so those were things that we talked about, but didn't necessarily execute in the offline editing, just sort of tempted in to see, will, will this even work? You know, is this idea going to sing? Um, and then 
you know, laying in sort of the, like I was saying, the way that I normally cut, laying in the basic sound effects. If you hear a gun, you, you know, if you see a gun, you know, shoot, you're going to hear it. If you hear, see a car door close, you're going to hear it. All those things I, I do, you know, yeah. during my, during my offline process. Um, our situation was a little bit unique in that Peter is based in Denmark and our composer is up North and I'm in LA and Robert was in Utah. So we were in wow. the pandemic. So we did a lot of things, uh, obviously remotely, but, um, you know, thankfully, Due to the technology and uh, you know all that, we were able to make it work. Um, it required a couple of like Peter was limited on time, so he did his his sort of first pass once we had a kind of a soft lock, and then kicked it back to us. And then based on that, we made more changes, and then kicked it back to him. And then based on that, made more changes. So it was like you know we went from a, a little bit of a fatter cut to trimming it down, maybe cutting scenes now that we had a sense of where that sound design and and music was going to go. Um, Peter and Will worked very very closely together to craft the sound of the film. If you listen to his other film, which actually didn't have any music at all, it was, you know, Peter did all of the music and sound design um, himself on the last film. Uh, and it feels very much like you can't quite tell what's the diegetic sound, what's the music, what's, you know, what what's coming from the, the world of the film, what's in his head. Right. Um, so that's a big part of what the story is. So uh, I feel really fortunate to have worked with both of them. They did such a phenomenal job with the film. So being able to have sort of this much heavier version of it have it come back to me so that Robert and I could based on that say, okay, now this is too heavy handed. This scene maybe doesn't need to be here. Maybe we need to switch things out. Um, and being able to do that a few times with them and then ultimately ending up in Denmark for our final mix, which I was able to be a part of. So. Wow. That's incredible. Oh. <laughs> Peter's Peter does mostly documentary work. So I'm sure that's also interesting how that informs yeah. his work and narrative. Yeah, he does. He's actually done. I know he's done. Uh, well, he did Robert's last feature. And I know that he's done a bunch of other features, if I'm not mistaken, in in Denmark. I don't know exactly what his mm -hmm. his, um, you know, resume reads, but I know that he has done a lot of big documentary features. Yeah, I think I think him and Robert specifically for this style of film, they took a very unique approach and it it definitely feels a lot like the other one. And I, I think that was something that they wanted to kind of continue as a through line. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's I mean, I just, I think there's just, a, I think an editor's brain is a unique thing, because the way you organize things and the way you speak about it, it's just so succinct and, and precise. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that just shows your skill sets right there, just the way <laughs> you just even review what you talk about. But, <laughs> um, but Gemma, I want to jump over uh, to you. Uh, what were your goals as um, you know, the, we mentioned before for Heartbreak High? So what were your goals as the music supervisor for the Netflix series Heartbreak High? And what environment or were you aiming to create through the music choices? Um, well, you guys may not know, because I don't think the original series was big in America, but it, the, the, it was actually a very cult show in the 90s, similar to Degrassi Junior High around the rest of the world. <laughs> um, and uh, and it was very edgy and it was known for that, you know, at the time. So um, with this new series, like the, the script and the characters are all so, so savvy and smart. I just really wanted to make sure that the music we used was music that the characters would actually listen to and not some sort of millennial or boomer idea of uh, what, what, um, what the kids are down with. Um, so that was super important. And of course, just not un underestimating the intelligence of either the kids or the viewers, you know. So we really went to town on, um, yeah, making sure that the music was super authentic. And and that meant, you know, delving into scenes, which I am actually already pretty interested in myself anyway. But there's, for example, there's a whole um, um, episode that takes place at the, you know, Sydney's famous for the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. And there's, they would go to a sissy ball, you know, like a voguing um, ballroom scene 
um, uh, event. So, you know, delving into all the sort of um, big underground queer artists from, from Sydney and elsewhere, um, you know, it's a very specific scene, which I love. <laughs> um, yeah. um, and, you know, well, I have to say that, like, while that's always sort of, I'm always looking out for um, opportunities for diverse artists, working in a project like this, I didn't even really have to make much of an effort. Like half of the artists we used were either, you know, non-binary, brown, whatever, you know, it wasn't, it just wasn't even an, an issue. Like, I mean, there's so many incredible electronic artists out there who aren't cis, white, male, middle-class, you know, the rest, all the rest of it. Um, right. There's also a whole um, scene in Western Sydney, which is kind of the equivalent of South Central LA, I suppose. Um, huge, huge a scene of um, underground, like drill and trap artists who are like massive in the UK and elsewhere. And they're all, um, you know, mostly Asian or Pacific Islanders and, um, and you know, they've got billions of streams on the, on the platforms that they don't get represented in the mainstream media at all. So I just saw it as a great opportunity to, you know, it's very authentic to the world of the story, but also, you know, just constantly um, conscious of trying to give opportunities to, to um, artists that aren't really getting them in that way. Um, yeah, so that was really, that was really a very, that was my um, main driving force in the in the wow. production, and I, you know, obviously, I had to um, you know battle it out a little bit with um, some of the creatives involved, whether it's you know directors or network people or whatever, who you know had a very strong idea about what they thought the music would be. But I had to stick to my guns and you know, yeah. you know about about what the kids are actually listening to. You know, you don't listen to they don't listen to justice at a sissy ball, you know, the, the, it's not, it's, it's a very specific beat. It's a very specific scene, you know, but, um, but fortunately the main creatives involved were absolutely on the same page with me. So, yeah. That's great. That's it was, yeah, it was really, really support. Fun. Yeah. Support from mm, everybody. Yeah, mm. yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It was super fun. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Nathan, I want to go over to, to you. I, you know, you've talked about uh, your studio. Uh, this is sound design and we've got a little insight about your history with it um uh, in Burbank so I'm just curious you, you know you just opened a theatrical Atmos stage and mm -hmm. I'm a huge lover of, of Dolby Atmos I have uh I used to be projectionist so uh presentation is really big for me I have my Dolby Atmos set up here at home actual Dolby Atmos speakers um not a sound bar or anything like that so I'm curious specifically uh what's the importance of Dolby Atmos specifically for re-recording for a re-recording mixer and how does that affect your creative process um yeah um yeah one of the you know I, like I said, I've had a I had a few facilities over the years, um, and you know, building out this new new space, we built this out of a warehouse in in Burbank. So we started from scratch, and so we could really make some decisions. Um, yeah, I'm actually sitting in our Atmos stage right now. This is a theatrical wow. <laughs> Atmos stage. It has 32 full range surround speakers. It's um, <laughs> you know, and when we built this stage, it, the idea was to make something that was. Um, you know, not gigantic because, you know, when we're doing bigger budget movies, we often go up to one of the stages in Hollywood. But but what I really wanted to be able to do was mix medium budget movies and smaller movies and really be able to in incorporate Dolby Atmos into our workflow, not just as like something we go to the stage for a week and then, you know, are able to throw some things into some speakers, but actually be able to work from day one because we actually have two Atmos stages here. One's a broadcast and one's a theatrical. We can actually start mm. building that into the sound design process from day one. And, you know, it's huge for music. We just finished a big budget historical epic and they uh, they 
they sh they uh, recorded it with the orchestra in Italy that worked with Morricone and, you know, it was a full hundred piece orchestra and a choir. And, you know, to be able to bring that material back and then in this stage where it's a full theatrical atmos and we don't have time to get into what makes the difference between a theatrical atmos and a, and a regular home theater atmos. But, you know, it's not just about the ceiling or or the surrounds, but it's actually being able to really discreetly space out a mix and then integrate it into the, you know, reverbs where we can really uh, start to think spatially about how we mix right. and specifically about music. Because when you're dealing with a hundred piece orchestra of material, you, you know, oftentimes what we're really struggling with as mixers is crashing all of this sonic material down into just uh, what are essentially, you know, six speakers. So it's been a real revelation because it it really allows us to completely rethink the way we create a, a mix um, and then how sound design and music can start to speak to each other more because it isn't like things just have to live in one part of the of the mix, but we can actually really start to space things out and integrate them. So it's been a really and, you know, it's ultimately our goal is to make Atmos kind of a day one process for every single movie we do here, not mm. just the things that have, you know, you know, multi tens of million dollar budgets. Um, because I do think just like when I first started in, in five one, you know, most things were stereo and five one was sort of this, you know, it was like an add on, but really now it's much harder for me to mix a movie in stereo than five one. Cause it's so integrated with the way I think about the, the sound design and the mix. Um, and I, and, and my goal in with my team and I is that we want to make Atmos that for everything we do. So in the next couple of years, we want to, even if it's a tiny movie, we want to be using Atmos as kind of our, just our regular go-to everyday way to approach the material. So that's, that's kind of where we're at with it right now. Yeah. I think there might be some like, yeah, customer or just like a consumer confusion about Atmos because, you know. Apple says you can listen to it here, even though you can't get lossless <laughs> via you know Bluetooth. But um, yeah. <laughs> the spatial yeah. audio can be a confusing space. But I mean, to see it from the origin point like that when you're mixing for theater and and stuff like that is is just it's mind blowing. Um, and I'm but I'm do, pretty hopeful about what's happening with even though with like spatial audio, even in, I love. I mean, it's yeah, pretty remarkable it, because it's a way possible. better than than just plain old stereo. You know, the spatial audio yeah, space yeah. is way better. So I, I'm. It blew my mind first time actually using my AirPods Pro and I was watching TV and I was like taking the headset. I was like, oh my God. Like, and I have like a thousand dollar speaker set up. I'm like, what? Like, uh, but yeah. it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah. This is a hundred thousand dollar speaker set up in this room. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, we've done a lot of AB work and really listened and it, it's pretty remarkable what we can, what we can do with just the psychoacoustic kind of data that yeah. Atmos provides, even if it's just going to a pair of earbuds. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that for the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I, the work you do, it's all of the work you guys do is so interesting. So I, I have to ask what's next. So um, what's, what, what we can look forward to from all of you, Gemma, let, you know, I want to start with you since I hear you're working on a, a sci-fi thriller called Foe. And I'm curious what you can share with us about it and, you know, give us a teaser. And um, it was, <laughs> if you're allowed well, to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, I mean, I've got, I can talk a bit about that. That one's still, um, yeah, no, it's, it's an, it's a film by the director of a film called Lion. I'm not sure if you guys were film came out a few years ago. Um, yeah. yeah. It's starring Saoirse Ronan and Paul Mescal, who's, who's sort of the man of the moment, the, you know, having been in After Sun and whatnot. Um 
it's a it's it's been an incredible process because the the director and I have worked together for over ten years, and so um, this isn't so much a post production story, but uh, we you know we we started talking about the film probably two years before it even got up. So it's been a wonderful process that all through lockdown, <laughs> nutting out the sound and the tone of the film, um, sourcing the composers because we actually had three composers on this film for different reasons. Um, one one person, um, a female composer who created the piano music that one of the characters is going to play we really wanted it to be a, from a female voice um and then we have a another composer who's an incredible korean artist who plays very has a very very singular sound so we just had to have that but then not having done film work before we also um, also worked with um oliver coates who's just done after sun and many other films and he's he's very much um He's going to be the next man of the moment, I think. Uh, he's a close collaborator of Johnny Greenwood and um, Mika Levi. So he's, uh, yeah, he's quite incredible. Um, so Faux should be, we're nearly finished, not quite, but it's, it yeah. should be coming out this year. I'm also very excited about um, Bo is Afraid, which is Ari Aster's new film, yeah, which um, was an interesting film to work on from, during lockdown, I was working on several films in New York, from Australia <laughs> so we generally had our meetings as they were on their way to dinner but um uh <laughs> that's a that's I'm super excited to see how that how that's perceived because it's it's a pretty crazy film that's all I'm gonna say it's, yeah I mean the trailer it's, it's, the trailer it's gonna blow amazing. people's minds I don't yeah. I don't even think I could give you a one-line synopsis it's too you can't describe it yeah no, <laughs> um but, yeah, Ari's so such a visual person I can't up. wait yeah <laughs> oh yeah it's 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 gonna blow pe people's minds um other projects I'm working on are probably a bit early to to talk about so they're probably the two main ones that I'm excited to um Awesome. Well, yeah, I can't wait for those. Uh, let's, I want to go around the room. Is anybody else I can? I know don't want to break any NDAs or anything, but uh, Forrest, <laughs> is there anything that you can talk about that's coming up that you're allowed to share? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well. Well. Uh, yeah. I, I mixed the score for a film called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is by a good friend of mine, Gavin Brivik, oh, yeah. uh, and that's you know that that got uh, picked up at. Uh, uh, it's going to be released theatrically in April, uh, I think. So I'm excited <laughs> for for that to uh, to hit the hit the theaters and nice. Um, it's like uh, you know, it, I often get asked to do orchestral stuff, but like uh, this was like fully synths, so I had this whole new set of challenges and very fun. Oh yeah, um, but yeah, no, that, that's that's what I'm really looking forward to. You know. Awesome. Well, can't can't wait for that one. Uh, uh, Nathan, how about yourself? Anything coming up yeah, that you want to talk about? Uh, we're yeah, sure. We got lots coming. Um, we're kind of in the full swing of festival season. We just had uh, one of our favorite movies that we've done, uh, Joyland, which which won Uncertain Regard at Con or won Jury Prize last year, and then was at Toronto, and now has just been doing the kind of victory lap of all the other yeah. festivals. So it was just at Sundance. Uh, and it was uh, shortlisted for the Academy Award. It didn't quite make it, but it's uh, actually going to be coming out theatrically and it's already playing in the UK and all over Europe. Um, so we're excited about that. People are loving it. The Guardian just gave it a rave review in, in the UK. So so check that out when it comes out. It's just a beautiful movie um, with beautiful music, actually, by a young Pakistani uh, uh musician it's mostly synthesized based music and i love the oh, score wow. in it too for those i know we're here talking about music 
Um, and then we've got two movies premiering at South by Southwest. Uh, one's called The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster, which is a kind of modern take on the Frankenstein story. Uh, mm. And then we have a documentary premiering called Citizen Sleuth, which is about um, it's about uh, kind of citizen journalism and a woman who starts a podcast investigating a true crime kind of story. So um, so that's coming. And then we've got more things coming after that. We just finished a movie with uh, Chelsea Peretti directed uh, the music. Um, uh, SD Heim was the music supervisor and um, and uh, cool Kojak who worked with Kesha and lots of other great pop artists was actually the composer. So it's a really cool mm -hmm. hip score and that, so that's going to be coming. So keep an eye out for that. Um, yeah. And then we've got a big uh, budget, big uh, studio movie that's based on the life of mother Cabrini, uh, the first saint in America. It's like a big historical Epic. And so that's going to be coming out. Uh, I don't have a date yet, but it's coming soon. So keep an eye out for that. And that one, we did a big giant, fantastic atmos mix for so right. uh so i think that's all the stuff that's kind of in the near term and yeah a lot more coming after that so that's awesome that's awesome uh yvette how about yourself what, what anything you can talk about um well integrity of joseph chambers just came out theatrically and dropped on you can watch it on apple or you know um i think amazon so any of those um and i'm really proud of it and i'm excited to see where that goes, um, have a couple of other films that are kind of doing the festival circuit too. I have a, a short that I cut that played at Claremont Ferrand and won the grand prize, uh, the France grand prize, which was really cool. And looking ahead to what next, what's next going to do another feature soon. So can't nice. quite, yeah, I don't, I can't, yeah, can't talk about it yet. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Congratulations. Um, well, before I know we're, we're, you know, we've been running for about an hour, but I, I do want to wrap everything up and go around the room one last time, uh, because I love a lot of young composers, a lot of young people, not just composers, but people in also all of your fields are entering the industry and getting started. And right now we're seeing the most crazy amount of change I think we've seen, you know, at least since I've been here, everything's shifting and changing with the ground moving under us. So I'm curious what, if you could give somebody once like a young person entering this industry, whether it's in your field or just in general, one piece of advice, just like a one sentence, you know, piece of advice, what would you give them? And, uh, you know, just uh, something that you wish you knew maybe when you started or something that could guide them in the current state of the industry. So I don't know, maybe Forrest, if you want to kick us off. It's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, uh, I think you know, like try to try to wor work with people you respect. Try to seek out the people that you respect and mm. um, see how you can help them. Yeah, I, would, I, I agree. I was like, what you can bring to the table, rather what you can take from the table. Like you know, I think that the collaborative spirit if you come out with a not a selfish mind yeah no I, I agree with that completely um yeah. Gemma how about yourself I think if you're just starting out I think it's great to find your peers people who are at a similar stage to you so maybe ally if you're a composer ally yourself with some mm -hmm. of the emerging short filmmakers so then you can kind of nut it out together and make your initial mistakes and you know um uh, and hopefully if you've backed the right horse, you know, the, the the director might be someone who's really going places and will potentially take you along with them. Um, but I, yeah. I just think it's great to find, you know, don't don't always aim for the, you know, the top of the, the hill at the, at, the, at the beginning, but rather try and find people who are at a similar level to you and try and work, um, come up together. I think that's a really great way to to um, hone your craft. Really good yeah. advice. 
Hundred percent. Uh, last panel, someone said, uh, "Don't compare your chapter one to somebody else's chapter 30. And I thought that was mm. like the best way to encompass that. Like, you know, mm -hmm. don't aim for that the end of the road. Start, you know, focus where you're at, and and mm. absolutely no side. Mm. Be patient. Yeah, it's a, patience. It's a long That's road. A big one. <laughs> it's a long road. Uh, yeah. Nathan, how about you? What, what piece of advice would you give? Yeah, I mean, I'm number one, I'm a strong believer in a creative education, and that doesn't have to be formal, though I think it can mm. be. I think these days, a lot of people are kind of down on school. But I think if you go into it with the right mindset of you're going to learn how to be creative rather than learn how to make movies or learn how mm. to make sound, you can go on YouTube and figure out how to make sound. But learning how to think deeply, how to think creatively, how to have conversations and be able to interact with people and be collaborative and, and kind of develop ideas. That's, I think, the thing that has real currency. And I think yeah. that that's, there's never enough people that can, can contribute in that way. Um, I'll hire people that can contribute in that way all day long. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that's one thing. And then I also think that, you know, everybody, I don't think there's one path to this. And in fact, no, like no. everybody's going to have their own, really idiosyncratic way that they're going to come at this. And I think that, you know, a lot of people will try to tell you like, oh, you got to do it this way or you got to do it that way. You know, everything that has worked for me in my career has been because I just didn't do it the way the way that someone said I should do it. Yeah. And I think that ultimately has been why I landed where I did. And so I, that's that's my advice. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. also just get used to working really, 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 really hard. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because if you don't think that's going to be part of it, then you probably should go do something else because it's just yeah. the kind of the, the the real truth of it. And hopefully you enjoy working hard because that's right. That's also pretty essential. Yeah. Uh, so, and I enjoy yeah. what you do. Yeah. If, if it's if it's yeah. if you're not having fun doing it, then don't do it. <laughs> you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. then it doesn't really <laughs> feel like that, like work. And that's true. I don't really right. feel I work very, very hard, but I don't most of the time it doesn't feel like work. It just feels, uh, feels good. So no, I agree with that completely because I went to film school and even though film school is that bubble where I mean, you have that bubble, that creative bubble where you get to work and, and play and figure things out because once you get into the real world, there's a very small chance you'll ever get back to being able to helm, you know, a film set again for maybe for a long time. So I right. to take advantage of school. Yeah. I think it's a, a safe space to learn. Uh, Yvette, how about yourself? So I actually teach as an adjunct professor at USC's film school. So this is oh, nice. a topic that comes up a lot with my students and every single thing that everyone said, number one, the idea of, you know, stick with your peers, don't be afraid to work at that level. The mm. idea of um, using school as a safe space to experiment. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember the last thing that Pat or that uh, Nathan said, but it was important. It was, uh, you were, you said something, but it was all of this is stuff that comes up in my um, advice to them. And I think the other thing that I always advise them on is the significance of your reputation and how it mm. receives you from job to job. And, you know, I think for me, I take my role as an educator really seriously because I am potentially turning out a new group of a new generation of people who are going to be working in this industry alongside us and yeah, wanting to make yeah. sure that they're coming out of it, not only honing their craft and understanding, you know, how to tell a story, but being really kind and good people who are going to yes. be taking that with them into the industry. So I think that's really important. I always say that if I have the opportunity to hire someone who's maybe a little bit more green, but is really pleasant to be around and is a really hard worker, that's what you were saying, Nathan, that you will have to be a hard worker. Um, 
I will always hire that person over someone who's maybe a little bit more experienced and who has a negative reputation or who's a difficult person. Um, yes, absolutely. Or, I, I yeah. 100% agree. And I also yeah. think that um, following on from that, I think um, maybe as composers or anyone doing those key roles, um, as they progress a little further into their career and have, have a few credits, be really careful about what, what jobs you take on as well, because, yes. you know, scoring a film is a massive undertaking. And it's also, you know, you very, as a composer, you can very quickly get pigeonholed. So I, don't, you know, like I have composer friends who've ended up just doing so much of a certain type of Australian television that I know, even though they're incredible, they're just not going to get hired on some of the really prestigious films I work on because yeah. people are snobby <laughs> and you have to, you just have to be really careful about what you, what you put your name to and what you invest your time in. Yeah. I wait, that, that comes up a lot as well. And, mm. and that's something that I tell them too, is don't be afraid to take steps back. If you, if you mm-hmm. it, look, if you're doing that kind of work and you're happy doing it, fantastic. But if you get to mm. a point where you're feeling unhappy and you want to make a transition or it's not fulfilling you in any way. And I certainly got to that point with some of my work. I had to take a step back to move forward. And that's, that's just the way it is. And to do that mm-hmm. young, when you're younger or when you realize it, when you're younger, it, it's easier to do it earlier before yeah. you have, you know, a family, before you have a partner, before you have all these other kind of logistic logistical things that can weigh you down from being able to take those steps back. So, you know, don't feel like you're stuck just because this is a job you've been doing for five years, 10 years, whatever. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I agree with that completely because, yeah, the people talk in this industry and if your reputation, you know, you'll you'll be known. But, you know, if you're if you're an asshole, you'll be known as an asshole and no one wants to work with assholes in this industry. And it's all, that's why you see these people keep continuing. I mean, everyone's been talking about how you continually have a team that you work with over and over again for decades. And it's like, yeah, if you connect, it's very rare, to, you know, to find people that you really gel with and and. You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And if you enjoy being together and you actually are friends and are collaborators, I think we need to, you know, I always love going back to the idea of that because you do remember film school where you're with your friends and that's the best thing you're creating and you're in that safe space, but bring that into the to the professional side as well. But um, but I want literally to think- every single job I've ever done is just a line from one to the next to the next. Yeah. There's no, yeah. there's no like secret. It's just literally though. word of mouth going back mm-hmm. 150 projects. So because yeah. everyone's gonna ask, hey, do you know this person? Yeah, you know someone who can, and then and if you you are great. They'll put your name out there and that's how you get work. Yeah. <laughs> what I what I find I'm at the point in my career where like we'll have a movie and we'll have been recommended by three different people from three different groups of producers or projects, which I think is like yeah. that that's that's ultimately, you know, that's the that's the goal. So right. you know, because it is a very small, it is a very small world. So mm-hmm. it is. It is. That's a small world indeed. Well, I want to thank everybody uh, tonight for, for sitting down and, and talking. Uh, morning for you, Gemma. I know you're over in Australia, but uh, thank you to for thank you for us, Gemma, Nathan, and Yvette right. for taking the time to share about your work and your expertise. It has been so fun and so informative. And I want to thank our friends at Impact Twenty Four for helping uh, co-produce and and put this together for Film Music Media. And uh, Thank you all for watching. And uh, if you missed any of the other panels in this series, head over to filmmusicmedia.com and check out our YouTube channel and catch up with the other amazing uh, panels of uh, amazing storytellers that uh, we get to talk to. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us.